If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to take them and turn with me back to Genesis chapter 6. It has been many months since we have been in our study in the book of Genesis. I think we took a break um, for all of June, July, and August as we kind of looked at a topical series for the summer, a summer series called Church 101. We started the book of Genesis January 1st. Chapter 1, verse 1, five months, made it through five chapters, and I am excited and delighted to come back to this study. And we are greeted with one of the most difficult, one of the most complicated, in all honesty, argued texts in the entire book of Genesis. So I am so excited for God's timing to gather and study his word together. Thank you, Miss Michaela, for that. And that verse from Matthew chapter 11, isn't that a fitting verse for so many of us who are here this morning? Come unto me, all who are heavy laden, who are burdened. And Jesus promises to give rest. And not the type of rest that you maybe wake up in the morning from a bad night's sleep, but soul rest when the craziness and the storm is around you raging and there is a calm and a soothing rest that can only come from the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives I think of individuals here today school is back and and some are coming off like a great week an amazing week and you're on this high and then there's others who have been in the midst of struggle and stress and pain. And I love the fact that, um, as already has been mentioned by both Bob and Pastor Aaron, his word never returns void. That this, this is the precise, precise text, perfect text for us to study this morning. <clears throat> but because it is challenging, we need help. I need help. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we um, ask for the Lord to speak to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for the opportunity that you've given to us. And Lord, you receive us as your own children, and you minister to hearts and souls. And, And I pray, Lord, that you would do just that today to ones who are struggling. I I think, Lord, of our dear sister Ruth Keene, who just lost her dad just yesterday, and the pain of that. And Lord, I, I would pray that you would minister comfort to her in a unique and a special way, but Lord, you would also use us to come alongside of her and minister to her and her family. I pray for people that are in the midst of struggles and stresses and uncertainties and even fears and worries. I thank you, Lord, that you are perfect, that you are just, that you are sovereign. And Lord, as we reminded even last week, that there is a purpose for us to go through pains on this earth, that our faith would be tested, that it would come out as gold refined in the fire. Father, I pray, Lord, now that as we have a text before us that, to be honest, is argued and debated by many, Lord, that you would just just cover this entire time. I would ask, Lord, that you give wisdom and clarity and understanding. Thank you, Lord, that you love us the way that you do. And yet you are not only 
loving and merciful and, and you offer grace, but you're a just and a fair God. I pray, Lord, that we would get a, a better glimpse of you today. We love you, Lord. Please help me and, and the words of my mouth. May they be edifying and glorifying to you and to you alone. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. It's always appropriate to go back a little bit. It's been several months now, so allow me to remind you, in the beginning, God. He was, he is, and forever will be. Not only what we call the star of the show, but he is the writer. He's the executive producer, the editor, and director. The creation narrative begins with God and what? And nothing. It's described as what? Without form and void. And yet the spoken word changes everything. The triune presence on full display. In creation, we have God the Father speaking. We have God the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. And perhaps my favorite summary of the creation story reveals God the Son's presence as recorded in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Just think of this. From the very first day of creation until this day right here, mark it down. September the 10th, 2023. It is that same word. It is that same life, and it is that same light that we declare. Jesus the Christ. Now, we know that there's intentional emphasis with repeated phrases, and God said, and it was so, evening and morning, and it was good. After six days, what? There was order and structure, and there was beauty and splendor and sinless perfection, and the crowning glory of all of this was what? Was man and woman set apart from all creation as the only ones created what? In the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And yet we know the story, it very quickly cascades into a sinful and a sin-filled rebellion. From the disobedience of Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit to the curse and to the consequences that follow. Apart from a glimmer, and it's literally just a glimmer of hope through one man, Enoch, in chapter 5, verse 22, generations have spiraled further and further into darkness and the destruction of sin. Which brings us to our text for today. And let me just, let me just warn you, okay? It reads dark. It reads dark, and it is true that there is great sin, but, but there is, and hold on to this hope, 
There is greater grace. There is greater grace. And so my hope has been, and my prayer has been, have I gathered people around me this week to pray for this message? My hope and my prayer is that this morning you see, you see it firsthand. You hear and you learn and you know of that grace, of that grace. Here's our text. Genesis chapter 6 the first eight verses, the word of the Lord. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Four points I want to give to you this morning. The first one we see it's laid out right here in front of us. I refer to it as what? The degeneration of mankind. The degeneration of mankind. The story opens with what all would agree is the most debated text. Now notice, well, there's 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. We'll finish this hopefully sometime in the next decade before I die. I don't know. 50 chapters, and it is really not that debated that this is the most debated text by way of how complicated it can be. And yet I believe it holds actually very simple truth for us. Sadly, I don't think it's that complicated. It was initially a command to be fruitful and multiply. Going all the way back to Genesis 1 verse 28 was an indication of the Lord's blessing. Now what is it? It's a descriptor of the multiplying of wickedness upon the earth as the population quickly and almost dramatically increases. The study was done by Dr. Matthew Castro in he refers to the fact that based on the genealogies, okay, from creation to the flood, it's referred to as the antediluvian period. So basically Genesis chapter 1 through verse 6 very clearly is 1,656 years. So think about it. We're actually moving pretty fast. 
We've covered 1,656 years already. And if the growth rate basically was the same as it was kind of now in the 2000s, it's 0.012%. At that growth rate, I'll help you with your math. Math geeks that are amongst us, I've outsmarted you this morning. It's this, okay, 750 million people at the low end. Now, remember the lifespan, if their lifespan is much longer than that, it's being reduced to 120 years. They estimate that the number of men and women on the face of the earth by this point is on the low end, 750 million to 4 billion people. One of the key contributors here of the debate that takes place of this what which could be confusing text is verse 2 right out of the gate and it says what the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives as they chose. And so the question is who are these people? Who are these people? Now there's three primary interpretations here and we'll kind of address each one of them and I clearly lean one particular direction I want to hopefully make that clear to you who who are the sons of God and the daughters of men someone quickly say well it's actually not that confusing if you look at what Genesis chapter 4 there's a careful record of the genealogy of the ungodly Cainite line. Remember Cain killed his brother Abel. Okay, He lied about it. He was cursed. And then he whined about it. So my punishment is greater than I can. It's That would be the Cainites. Well, chapter 5 is all about the godly Sethite land. Excuse me, line. Therefore the sons of God were simply the Sethites who were eyeing up and marrying the beautiful but very ungodly daughters of man, the Canaanite women. So in a sense, interpretation number one, it's obvious there are two groups of people. There's some problems with this. When you talk about godly people behaving in such a way that we just described, every intention of the thoughts of their heart was only evil, continually, it doesn't really match with godly anything. And the challenge is this. It's this phrase, sons of God. Now, we know according to Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So we have to look at the totality of Scripture. And it's this phrase, the sons of God, that is a very, very unique phrase. It's actually used only four to five times in the entire Old Testament. Now, we know sons of God, you think, wait a minute, aren't we sons or daughters of God? And it is true, at least two different references, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2, as well as Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, that we are referred to as the children of the living God, but not necessarily specifically the sons of God. The normal reference, believe it or not, and this may be a little bit of a stretch for us, the normal reference that we see is not referring to a man or a woman, but actually sons of God is a common phrase to, to use to describe angels. Angels. The normative use 
Job chapter 1 and verse 6. And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. There's another reference in Job chapter 38, verse 4, when it speaks about God creation, creating, and looking upon creation, it says what? It says, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Well, wait, who else is present at creation? And we know as well another reference in Daniel chapter 3, verse 25. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace? Okay, and they, 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 they looked in and like, wait a minute, how many did we put in there? And we see what? I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a lowercase s, son of the gods. So allow me to, in a sense, shed a little bit more light even on this questionable or debatable phrase. Because I think there's two New Testament references that actually speak of this exact event. That hopefully bring clarity. Second Peter chapter 2 and Jude verses 6 and 7. In a sense, both of them are writing on the same subject about the destruction that comes, the devastation that comes from false teachers. Those who are trying to, in a sense, create chaos in not just the local church, but in the world itself. Let me direct your attention to Second Peter chapter 2. Verses 4, 5, and 6. <clears throat> Very interesting text. But if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. I believe in a sense there's a reference here specifically to these angels whom he did not spare, but he would lock them in chains of darkness. And we clearly understand that what? There are fallen angels... A third of them, as a matter of fact, that, that went with Satan, they are not chained in darkness, not all of them. Why? Because they are wreaking havoc in this world today. There is an enemy. There is a real enemy. Satan and his minions. If you look over to Jude chapter, there's only one chapter, Jude verses 6 and 7. I think it speaks of the same event to bring clarity Jude verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Same subject, Job is addressing the destruction that comes as a result of false teachers, the, the influence that they have, and what thus the pending judgment. And there's almost this identical phrase that Peter uses, that these angels, okay, stepped outside of what boundaries, parameters, and they are, at this present moment, this group of angels are locked 
in gloomy darkness, in chains, waiting for that day of judgment. Therefore, I would propose to you our second kind of view, interpretation of this. I, I would say that the sons of God are not the godly Sethite choir boys that some people think that they are. Nor, and this kind of alludes to, and I'll get to this in just a moment, nor is it the third view would be some fantastical, mythological creature, as many people believe that this is. I think they're actual angels. Specifically, they are fallen angels who are marrying and they're having sex with the daughters of men. Next argument is, wait a minute, I thought that angels don't do that. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, Jesus is teaching. And he says this, in the resurrection, they, speaking in a sense of us, neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Well, although I am not going to be married to my wife, Wendy, in heaven, I'm still going to be who God has created me to be. I'm still a man, she's still a woman. And when it says specifically that the angels did not stay within their own position of authority, as Jude verse 7 says, what is happening? In a sense, I believe we see these fallen angels commandeering what the bodies, we could say the souls of men, in a sense, we even talked about this last fall in a series on spiritual warfare, of demon possession, where, where these fallen angels are possessing people, men, who are what? Procreating sheer and utter evil. Or Ken Hughes says it well. It is these same angelic lowlifes whom Peter and Jude reference as having been imprisoned at the time of the flood and as now being kept in dungeons, what? Until ultimate judgment. Dr. Gordon Wenham says this, if the modern reader, you this morning, hears this, finds this story incredible, that reflects a materialism that tends to doubt the experience of spirits, whether good or evil. But those who believe that the creator could unite himself to human nature in the virgin's womb will not find this story intrinsically beyond belief. Which means at some level, what? If we believe that there is a spirit realm that does exist, that there is good and evil, and we know the miracles that took place in the word of God, for example, as Wenham speaks of the virgin birth, then this is not much of a stretch for us to actually believe. Now, I want to I talk about, kind of we get into the third view here in a little bit. Let me, just, let me just preface this, and I probably should have stated it even in the beginning. Differing views of interpretation are, are not reason of this particular subject, are not reason to bring division within the body of Christ. So I think at at some level, it could be A, B, or C, and we may fall one way or the other. I think it's very clearly one. But we have to hold on to that. I believe what's happening here is that Moses is actually intentionally bringing clarity, not confusion, to the situation by explaining what's happening, and he does it in the following verses, this, this challenging phrase, the Nephilim, or word Nephilim. Who are they? Moses writes this. Remember, this is post-flood that he is writing this. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. 
Notice the period. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. God knows in his sovereignty, we're going to read a text like this and other texts and say, there's some, I'm sorry, it's just a little blurry here. God knew there would be some confusion, some speculation or conjecture. And therefore, I believe here he offers a very clear distinction of the situation by explaining what? The Nephilim are one thing, the sons of God are another. Notice, well, like I said, that there's two sentences here. In the Hebrew language, oftentimes one sentence connected in the same subject will begin with the word end. And there is no, in a sense, here, at, at some idea of the word end, rather there's a period which when there's a period and the same subject, it serves as a footnote. The second verse serves as a footnote to the preceding verse. Intentional clarity. Rather than erroneously, and I think this is the third view that some people do hold, erroneously thinking that they are the product, that Nephilim are the children of the sons of God and daughters of men, which in all honesty does come from ancient traditions and ancient books. It's referred to as Enochic traditions. There's the book called Enoch, which doesn't make the canon of Scripture, and in that here has this what? The genealogies of the angels, and he's in a one who started, in a sense, the, 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 the myth that exists. So Moses is demythologizing by saying, no, they were on the earth before, and they're on the earth after. The text does not tell us who these people are specifically, because remember, this is post-flood that Moses is writing this. They know who the Nephilim are. Everybody knows who the Nephilim are. They are big, and they are bad people. They're real people. They're nasty warriors. And we see this throughout the pages of Scripture. If you go later on again, words of Moses written in Numbers chapter 13. Remember when they were spying out the land? It says this, The land though which we have gone out to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we see in it are of great height. They're giants. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we once seemed to ourselves, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. When they were spying out the land, like, look at those giants. They're going to smush us. Smush, smush us we do to grasshoppers so these mighty men are real people i think they're fierce warriors that contributed to the tremendous evil and violence that had completely filled the earth now why is this why is this like this is like we're in a classroom here for a moment why is this so important in a sense we can't blame the evil on on this world whether or not pre-flood or post-flood on just the, the angels, the enemies, the fallen angels. There's a, a degree of human responsibility that is here. We have a very quick, we have a very, very easy way of saying, it's, it's not my fault, it's his fault. I think that's why we are being so clear on this, which leads us to the second point, and we just got to the second point, but it moves quicker. Number two, the depravity of mankind. 
the depravity of mankind in verse 5. You, you will recall God saw, remember when he, he creates everything, steps back, and there's this repeated phrase, it was good, four times. Chapter 1, verse 9, verse 18, 21, 25. One time in verse 31, he says what? It is very good. And now we see here, and we, we have a stark contrast that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And, and underline some of these words, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it's hard to actually comprehend every only continually. Let me, let me just describe a little bit here. The, 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 the girls that are being married, remember, are being married. It's not like they are just what? They're just being like kidnapped and drug off. In, in, in Hebrew time, what? There was great care and consideration to marriage. They're wives. The only way that a that a young girl was to be married was that what her father was going to give his daughter away. We have the same tradition here. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? So, so just pause here on the depravity of mankind for a moment. Dads, fathers are okay with handing their daughter his own precious gift over to what? To be married to a man possessed by a demon. That's just imagine for a moment when we think about how depraved that is, how, how dark that is. Dads that have daughters or granddaughters here, just imagine for a moment someone hurting your daughter. Dad, what are you going to do? Somebody, somebody's going somebody's to hurt my little girl? I remember, I, I love this. I keep, I watch like five movies over and over again. And, and the Roman soldier in the movie Risen. And, and they say this, can you fathom the beating? And that's in a sense what happened. Think about any father under normal circumstance, is going to protect his own daughter with his own life. Imagine the beating. And these fathers are like, go ahead and take her. Do whatever you want with her. I remember a time years ago, we were all four kids. Um, I was probably early teenage years. We were out to the movies. And, um, and we're coming out of a movie theater, walking through a parking garage. I don't remember exactly, even to this day, I wasn't fully aware of what was going on, but a man walked by, and a man either gestured, he uttered something under his breath, or he reached, I'm not exactly sure, he did something that was totally inappropriate to my oldest sister, who was probably 17 or 18 at the time. And, and all I know is that we were kind of coming out of the movie, and we're kind of talking, and all of a sudden, my dad, five foot eight, 260 pounds, is sprinting across the parking lot. You do not, you do not speak to my daughter like that. That's the, that's the instinct within us 
And yet what happens here is the exact opposite. And the concern is what? One of my concerns about preaching on the depravity of mankind, particularly even as we look around us, it's manifested in our own culture and context, is that I don't want to sensationalize it. I don't want to glorify the sin, give attention to it. Actually, rarely was in agreement, I respect it, one of the most liberal news media outlets that exists in our culture today. And I remember after, and there's too many of them to count, after one of the mass shootings, and this liberal um, news outlet said, we will not mention this man's name, and we will not show his picture under any circumstance. And I respect that. You don't glorify and sensationalize and draw attention. That's what they're looking to. So we don't really need to what? Examine the sordid, descriptive details that exist, not just pre-flood, but post-flood in our world today. But it's real. Let me tell you this. It is real bad. And think about this. Pre-flood, God wipes millions if not billions, off the face of the earth to cleanse it. And yet look around us today. Look around in our world today. And we're like, yes, there's wars, there always has been, and there's corruption. But the question is, what? Why, why is it that God allows, even at this moment, the exploitation of the most vulnerable? If there's anything, if there's anything, little ones, women, children that are abused and sold and trafficked for the, for the sake of that which is just sick and wrong and evil, fleshly, distorted pleasures. Look around, and it's very, very, very evident that there is what? No limit to the evil that exists in the heart of mankind. There is no limit to that. Jeremiah speaks of this in chapter 17. What? The heart is desperately, deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? They're looking around us today. We can't even fathom the, the darkness and the evil that exists. As hard as it is, this is where we pause and we, we have to almost lean in here. We, we have to listen to and we have to know what? Third, it all and let me, let me underscore, it all earns the judgment of God. People are like, Pastor, I just don't know. Like, like, people don't really address this subject. Let's just kind of move through this. It's very common for pastors, just kind of like, let's just jump over to the fact that we're going to spend the next, what, couple months on Noah and the ark? Look, look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord regretted that he had made them. It grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. I'm sorry that I made them. You can't, you can't help but feel the heartache. And we will spend plenty of time over the next several chapters examining the detail of the utter destruction of mankind as a result of the flood. And it's very, very easy for people to come to the conclusion that they, that they say today, how unloving God is. How unloving when we see the evil that exists in this world to read about a universal flood. This is so unloving and cruel of God. 
But the truth is what? God will not leave sin unpunished. God will not leave sin unpunished, which leads us and leaves us with two only very clear and obvious conclusions. For you and I this morning, here's conclusion number one. Prepare to suffer unimaginable eternal consequences for your own sin. Well, that's going to fill a church up, Pastor. I, I, I have got to tell you the truth. So here's consequence, here's evidence, here's results. Prepare to suffer unimaginable eternal consequence for your sin. Or here's the second conclusion. Trust your life to the only one who could suffer and did suffer in your place. And you, you pause on the ladder and you will very, very quickly see the opposite, what many people are saying, how unloving God is, and you will very quickly see what? How loving God is. First Peter chapter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That my friends, is love. That is love. Psalm 136, and I would encourage fathers to sit around the table or single moms, whoever is, is, is in charge of the direction of your home. Sit around the table and read Psalm 136, and you will very quickly see 26 times in 26 verses his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. When we, what, we scan the panoramic view of this world and we are frustrated and fearful of the evil that exists, his steadfast love endures forever. 26 times in 26 verses our hearts, our minds, our families, our lives, the breath in our lungs, every single beat of our heart has got to be focused on his steadfast love endures forever. Finally, number four, this reveals the grace of God. Verse eight, it's the shortest verse that we read. But all the darkness, all the evil, dads having, fathers having abandoned their role to protect, handing over, watching evil multiply. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Later in this very chapter, actually next week, we'll see that just like Enoch's description, there's the same description of Noah that says what? He walked with God. And, and yes, we, we pause on the degree of evil, and yet in the midst of all of that, just think for a moment, millions upon millions upon millions, in the midst of the darkness and depravity and degeneration of the world, in the midst of that, there was one man and there was one family. You, you, ever, feel, you ever feel like you're the only ones? 
yeah, my kid can't go to practice because we're going to worship. You ever feel like you're the only one on the team, only one in the bus? Like, yeah, we're, we're a little bit, yeah, we don't, we don't laugh over those kind of jokes. We don't, we don't go to those places. We don't behave like other, you ever feel like you're the only one that's there? Let's get up early, because as a church, we're going to like shine our faces up, we're going to brush it, we're going to go worship together, and we're going to take our hard-earned money, and we're just going to give it away to the work of the Lord. And you ever feel like you're the only ones? Just, just imagine, just imagine. And yet we know, in all honesty, it wasn't Noah's righteousness that was saved him. And we know it wasn't. Why? Because, because he found favor. He found grace. This Hebrew word here, it's, it's hen. Han. It's a derivative where we get the name Hannah from. The woman's name, Hannah, that means grace. To be gracious, to have mercy. The psalmist writes in Psalm 6, Be gracious, have favor on me, O God, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, my bones are troubled. Maybe at this very moment you're in a place that says, My bones ache. Lord, please, have favor. Show me your grace. And we know that Noah was a sinner just like you and I. If it was up to himself, he would have perished with everyone else. But thankfully, God just offers, he just offers lavishly his grace. So we kind of step back and we're like, wait, wait a minute. So we have this story, sons and daughters and Nephilim. What do we, what do, we do with this? Why, why, in all honesty, all scripture is given by inspiration of God's prophet, but why is this here? Let me close by asking, does any of this sound familiar? Like, does any of this sound familiar? Just, just pause for a moment. The desperate brokenness of this world, the pending consequences of sin, and yet what? God mourning and weeping over our sin. And even in that, he extends grace. Does it sound familiar? Like, that's, that's, that's everything. That's the message of the gospel. That's why we turn the lights on every single Sunday. That's why we work and we sing loud. Because the message of the gospel. Because there is what? There's a desperate brokenness in this world. And there are pending consequences. And God is weeping when he sees the destruction, the devastation around us. And yet, even in the midst of that, he is reaching out his hand to say, there's a way of hope here. There's good news here in the midst of a bad news world. There is light in the midst of darkness. Ken Hughes says, this side of the flood, we don't have to fear a universal deluge. Nevertheless, we must fear a more lethal flood, that of being forever drowned beneath the cold waves of our own sin. But our only hope is in God's great grace. May we pause on that grace today. If you have not received it, then today is the day of salvation and know that there is hope in a desperate and a hurting 
world. Father, we love you. We thank you for this reminder from Scripture, although it is, it is difficult. It reads dark. Thank you that you don't leave us in the darkness. We understand the seriousness of sin and the pending consequences, but we love you and we thank you for your grace that we do not deserve. Help us to focus our attention on you and only you to rejoice in that and to worship you and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.